As I just mentioned, we're going to be this morning in Hebrews 7. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10, and so go ahead and turn there. And as you get to the text, go ahead and stand and follow along as I read. Hebrews 7, beginning with verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for, just as we sang already, your grace. We are completely, utterly dependent on your grace. And so we praise you and we ask you that by your grace you would help us through this time, through this text this morning, that you'd open our hearts and that we would love Christ more because of your word. We trust you, and we thank you for giving it to us. In Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I mentioned a few weeks ago when we were talking about uh, solid food versus milk that the writer of Hebrews is specifically referring in that text to teaching about Melchizedek when he refers to solid food. In Hebrews 5, verse 11, about this He's just been speaking about Christ and Melchizedek. We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So today, that's what we're going to be talking about. And it is a wonderful, wonderful picture in the Scriptures for us. And I want us to acknowledge as we consider talking about solid food or hard teachings from the Bible As we talk about meat or solid food, we need to remember that it is not uncommon for godly people to chew on and swallow meat or to read and study and and embrace hard teachings from the Bible and come away with different conclusions. You see that again and again and again. You take a group of men that that you trust as as Bible teachers, those who study the Word, and, and, and you'll see that they have different conclusions about different 
difficult topics. Not only that, there are denominations that are based on milk, what we would consider foundational teachings of God's Word. So how much more meat, hard teachings? And I tell you that and want to caution you and urge you, that doesn't at all mean that we shrug our shoulders and say, well, does it really matter then? Does it matter if I know what this means? Does it matter if I study this? And the answer to that is a resounding yes. We ought to study it. We ought to strive to know what it means. There is a right conclusion and the writer of Hebrews is saying in chapters 5 and 6 that we should be striving to know it. You ought to have grown up. You should be eating solid food. That's what he's saying to the, to the Hebrews and certainly to us as well. It matters. And so what is this teaching about Melchizedek? To start with, as we look at Melchizedek, let's consider when Melchizedek is mentioned in the Bible, or when he's introduced, and we find that in Genesis 14. And just to give you an account of Genesis 14, I encourage you to, to read it. In Genesis 14, the kings of Shinar and Elisar and Elam and Goam made war, it says, with the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboam, and Bela. So they, they, they begin, they go out and and start a war with these other kings. And they overpower them. Things didn't go well for the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboam, and Bela. They were, they were conquered, defeated. And it says in the text in Genesis 14 that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. And as they're fleeing, many of them fell into tar pits where they were stuck. And those who didn't fall into the tar pits, it says, fled to the hill country. They escaped. They ran for their lives. And so the enemy, the kings that made war with them, took all of the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. But here's the thing that it tells us in chapter 14 of Genesis, verse 12. It says this, they also took Lot the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Now, whatever our thinking is of Abram or Abraham, who's the one who the promise is given to and through him all of the people of earth are going to be blessed, whatever our thoughts of him, we get a, a little bit of a window into at least part of who he is in chapter 14 following that because someone, it says, escapes and goes to Abram and tells him, your nephew Lot and all of his family have been captured. They've been taken as slaves, captive by these kings. Now, what is Abram to do? How does he respond? Well, we see, beginning with verse 14 in Genesis 14, when Abram heard that his kinmen had been kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. 
And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. This is an amazing story. Abraham, blessed by God, chosen by God. And he hears, your nephew's been taken. He's a slave now. He's captured. He's in trouble. And he gets up, and he gets 318 men from his house, and he takes off, and he pursues them. This is a real, bloody, vicious war. In fact, Hebrews 7 refers to it as a slaughter. It says, Abraham returning from the slaughter. So you get, I get at least the image of the beginning scenes of Gladiator. And, and those, those horrible, vicious images. That's the kind of thing that's happened here as Abraham goes with these 318 men to get his family back. So he's surely coming back from that, smeared with dirt and blood from the battle. And certainly there's a, there's a pride as he's leading his 318 men, plus Lot and all of the captives and all of the plunder through the city. That, that's the circumstances in Genesis 14. And it's in that context and that condition that he encounters this mysterious character, Melchizedek. And this account in Genesis 14 is the only historical account of this king. It's not till a thousand years later that the psalmist David writes something concerning Melchizedek. In Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then after that, there's no mention until we come to the book of Hebrews. And yet, as we see both in Psalm 110 and Hebrews, this is a significant man, a significant character in redemptive history. And so let's look at what we learn about Melchizedek and why is he there. And to do that, I want to demonstrate, just as I think the writer of Hebrews is, is doing here, the purposeful comparisons between Melchizedek and Christ. And these comparisons are so significant the likeness is so significant that there are some solid, godly men who are certain that Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ coming to visit and bless Abraham. Now, I don't land there. I believe the writer of Hebrews is comparing them and showing that Christ is greater than Melchizedek. But the Melchizedek is there as a picture and an arrow pointing forward to the one who is greater, who is going to come and fulfill all that he was a shadow of. 
The writer of Hebrews' words in Hebrews 7, 3 say this, resembling, speaking of Melchizedek, resembling the Son of God. And that helps us to, to know that he is a type or a foreshadow of he who is greater. He's not the pre-incarnate Christ, but he was a human being who was the king of Salem and pointed or gave us a picture of how great the Christ is. And the big picture the writer of Hebrews wants us to see concerning Melchizedek is that Jesus perfectly fulfills what was foreshadowed in the Genesis account of Melchizedek. Now, what does it mean that, that here's someone in the Scriptures that's a, that someone would refer to as a type or a foreshadow of Jesus? Simply, it's this. God placed him there purposefully as a picture of the one who was to come. So that even thousands of years before Jesus is born and comes and saves mankind from their sins, all who would trust in him, thousands of years before that, God purposefully puts pictures and people in place to point an arrow through their lives of there is something and someone greater who is coming. It's all the, all the way back to the very beginning. In the garden, as, as Eve is hoping in one who's going to redeem them from these sins. And so, what are the comparisons that we see in Hebrews chapter 7? First is this. Melchizedek is, is both, or, or Melchizedek title foreshadows the title of Christ. Melchizedek's title foreshadows the title of Christ. In verse 1, we see Melchizedek is both king of Salem and priest of God Most High. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. That role of priest-king is significant It's something that no Levitical priest could ever be, according to the law of Moses. And yet, before the law comes through Moses, there is one who came as both king and priest, fulfilling both of those roles for the people before God Most High. It's a wonderful picture Because as a people who are broken and sinful, what we need is one who is perfect king and perfect priest on our behalf, over us, reigning, and for us before God. And so it's a wonderful picture thousands of years before the incarnation of Jesus that there is hope that one is coming. It's a foreshadowing of Christ who came as both king and priest. Zechariah proclaimed regarding the Messiah, yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. So even in the context of of the priesthood where, where the law said you can't be both king and priest, this prophet, Zechariah, comes and says there is one There is one who will come and seated on his throne will be priest before God Most High. And then we 
find in 1 Timothy 6.15, Paul speaking of our Savior Jesus, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 19.16, on His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We know that the one we serve, the one who has come to give His life for the sins of mankind is King over all. He reigns. Greater than Melchizedek, he reigns over all things and all people. He is the king, and Melchizedek is an arrow pointing to what he would perfectly fulfill. And yet, he is not only king, Jesus serves as the high priest for all who will come to him. If you remember back in Hebrews chapter 4, we looked at that months ago, In verse 14, beginning with verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin." Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus comes as king who reigns over all, worthy, and at the same time comes as priest who intercedes on behalf of those who come to him, submitting to him as king of their lives. Not only that, as we consider Melchizedek's title, the writer of Hebrews says of him, verse 2, to him Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So this king, Melchizedek, who comes is a king of righteousness and peace. prophesying of Jesus, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7 say this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. John in 1 John 2, 1 writes this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus as king and priest is righteous holy and righteous, perfectly right in standing before God, pure, undefiled. Never sinned, never will sin. But not only is He righteous, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of Him, you who are in Him, Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Not only is Jesus 
righteous in and of himself, those who come to him submitting to him as king are made righteous. He is our righteousness. Where Melchizedek comes and he is a king of righteousness and peace, he is not hope for Abraham and all who will come after him. Only Christ is that. Christ is not only the one who comes as king and, uh, king and priest, king of righteousness and peace. He comes bringing and making those who follow him both righteous and giving them peace. He enables those things for us and is those things on our behalf. Here's my hope as we go through these things in Hebrews chapter 7. And the reason I think that the writer of Hebrews has this here for us is that as we look at Melchizedek, our eyes quickly pass beyond him to the one who is our true hope and king. And that as we gaze upon him, looking past Melchizedek, that hope in our heart arises. Certainly that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying throughout all of this. He says hard things throughout the book, but all along as he's saying it is, you have hope. You of all people have hope. We are certain of these things, and as we look at Melchizedek, we're really looking beyond him. We have a king who is righteous and holy. He is king and priest, and he is those things for you. That is a hopeful, wonderful thing. Ephesians 2, verse 14, Paul says, For he himself is our peace. He is our righteousness, and he is our peace. Jesus is the only one in whom peace and righteousness can be found. We search. Many search for each of these other things in other areas of the world, in other areas of life, looking for righteousness in things that they do, looking for peace in things that they have. But there is only one in whom they can be found. And Melchizedek's title foreshadows Christ's character of righteousness and peace and king and priest for us. Secondly, Melchizedek's role foreshadows the role of Christ. What did Melchizedek do? This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. He blessed Abraham. And remember, this is Abraham. Abraham, who is promised through whom all of the world will be blessed. And Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. This one who it's been promised, the world, the whole earth is going to be blessed through you, Abraham. He comes before this king, Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses him. This is just a a foreshadowing of the one who truly will bless Abraham and everyone through him. Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek. But when Christ, our king, blesses Abraham, it's a blessing for all peoples. 
Galatians 3, 13 and 14, Paul writes this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is just a taste. As Abraham comes before this earthly king, it's just a taste of the blessing that's to come in the future through Christ, who he pictures. Ultimately, the Lord Jesus blesses all who come to him with forgiveness of sins, eternal life, righteousness, peace, and a relationship with God the Father through him. Christ is the fulfillment of the priestly duties of Melchizedek. He blesses his people to the fullest. Again, this is just a moment that comes and goes in Genesis 14, but there's one that's pictured through that who's going to come and bless for all time. And so Melchizedek's role foreshadows the role of Christ. Third, Melchizedek's reign foreshadows the reign of Christ. And we see this in a few ways in this text. First of all, it says of Melchizedek that he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, if there's any part of the teaching of Melchizedek that would cause someone to say, hey, this is Jesus. <laughs> Certainly this is Jesus. This has to be it, right? I mean, it's saying of this man, Melchizedek, he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. That can only be true of one. So what does that mean? Is this, is this specifically true of Melchizedek, or is this simply explained as a foreshadowing element of his character? And again, I would say it's the latter, especially in light of how the verse continues, but resembling the Son of God. He's resembling the Son of God. He's a picture of. And so what does it mean? What does it mean that it says of him, he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life? It is likely the writer is using the information that we have from the Scriptures as a picture. That this information, his father, mother, genealogy, time of birth, are mentioned nowhere in Scripture. Literally, Hebrews 14, or Genesis 14 is all we have. Historically, that's all we have of Melchizedek. So he literally just appears on the scene having seemingly come from nowhere and no one, and then disappears the same way. It shows no end to his priesthood. So in that sense, he continues as priest forever. Again, though, this resembles the Son of God of whom each of these things are true. Jesus' priesthood was based solely on the call of God. He is appointed as a priest of God most high, just as Melchizedek. Levitical priests served terms of no more than 30 years. 
And yet what was foreshadowed in Melchizedek, having no beginning or end, was fully realized in Christ's eternal priesthood. He reigns forever. There's no end to His priesthood. That's an arrow to Jesus, what we see here concerning Melchizedek. Hebrews 7, verse 21, this one was made a priest, speaking of Jesus, with an oath. But the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And so the reign of Melchizedek foreshadows the reign of Christ who comes and fulfills it perfectly. Melchizedek we have based on the information. We're not told his father or mother. We're not told his genealogy. We're not told when he began as priest or when he ended as priest. We're not told when his reign of, of, of king over Salem ended. Jesus, we are told, and it will never end. He's king forever. He's priest forever. And fourth, Melchizedek's standing foreshadows the standing of Christ. My hope is, as we consider even just this one foreshadowing, that our hearts would bow to our Savior, to Jesus. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. That is a a phenomenal statement. But that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. There's something so significant about Melchizedek that Abraham immediately responds in a surrendering attitude toward him. The writer of Hebrews goes on in verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now, we know what happened. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, it's, it's, it's not even up for debate that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. He's saying you can't refute it. Melchizedek, as the one who blessed Abraham, is the superior here in this text. He's greater than Abraham. And Abraham is the one who was blessed, who bowed before Melchizedek, who gave tithes to him, is inferior to Melchizedek. Now, just think that. In light of the Scriptures prior to this, speaking of Abraham and, and the greatness of Abraham, writing this to these Hebrews who grew up learning about Abraham and how great Abraham is and was. And the writer here is saying, this is, this is beyond dispute. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Now, what's the point here? If Melchizedek is an arrow, if Melchizedek is a foreshadow of one who is to come, clearly what the writer is trying to get us to see is Christ is far greater than Abraham, 
far greater than anyone. He's greater than Melchizedek, who is greater than Abraham. He's greater than you. He's greater than your purposes. He's greater than your plans. He's greater than anything else that you have before you. He is greater. He's better. He's good. He's far more worthy than any other thing you can set your heart on. He is greater than Abraham. He's greater than Melchizedek. Melchizedek is merely an arrow pointing us to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. As we continue in Hebrews 7 over the next weeks, we're going to see how the writer is proclaiming the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That He is far greater. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, speaking of this, He is the image of the invisible God, Jesus the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Hebrews 1, verse 3, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, I said at the beginning, there are many who study meat, solid food things, and they come away with different conclusions. And I've encouraged you for years, study. Don't just, if I say something up here, if Taylor say, says something up here, don't just take it. Look at the Word. What does it say? Is this true? Is this really what the... Go and study it and, and find. And if you come away with a different conclusion, as long as it's based on the Bible, okay. But not with this. We have to agree on this. Jesus is far greater. And he's worth everything. He is worthy of all. We can't disagree on that. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we, if we are a people who get caught up in the studies of the little discussions, little people compared to him like Melchizedek, we are lost and gone astray. These things, these people, these discussions, these doctrines are all meant for one purpose, that our eyes would bounce quickly to Christ to see how great our Savior is and how worthy He is, that He and He alone is King, that He and He alone is priest, that He and He alone is able to save, that He and He alone is worthy of worship. And this one who is high and exalted, King of kings and Lord of lords, comes to 
us and offers himself for us. You get the picture from Genesis 14. Abraham, filthy, dirty, exhausted, beat up, bloody. Just coming from battle. And Melchizedek comes to him in that condition and blesses him. And in the same way, Jesus comes to those who are sick and tired and dirty. And to all who believe in him, he heals them, he forgives them of their sins, he gives them rest and washes them clean. He is a merciful and gracious king and priest. He reigns forever and ever. Oh, that you would submit to him. We sang earlier, all to Jesus I surrender. Why? Because he's worthy. And he is the only hope for the world. As we go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper, the one other thing that Melchizedek does that the writer of Hebrews doesn't mention Because in Genesis 14, verse 18, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. What a wonderful foreshadowing of the priesthood of Christ who would come and offer to his people bread and wine. But as as symbols, as a picture of what he had truly offered, which was his body and his blood. Melchizedek fed Abraham bread and wine. He blessed him and his people with bread and wine. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus who feeds his people with bread and wine as a reminder of how and why they are his. Again, we read this often. We We celebrate this taking of the Lord's Supper each and every week. I so hope that it's not something that just becomes a habit or meaningless or just something we do. As Paul encourages, cautions us even, in 1 Corinthians 11, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, he says, Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. He's reprimanding them because of the way they have stopped remembering the significance of the bread and the cup. 
And so he goes on, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Oh, that we would be a people who so treasure Christ that it is easy and good for us to remember what he has done for us and that we would celebrate in our hearts the act of remembering together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Even as we come to you in prayer, Lord, we, we know from your word you are far greater than anything or anyone we can comprehend. Even as, we, even as we look at scriptures that proclaim your greatness, we know that our mind falters, fails us, that our thoughts of you are far too low. And so we are encouraged by your word that tells us there is a day when we will not see dimly any longer. We will see you face to face. And then we will know the fullness of of all that your word proclaimed to us. But help us, I pray, to be a people right here in this moment who do not take you for granted, who do not take your gift of the bread and the cup for granted, but that as we partake it together, that our hearts would be united together as a people who love you dearly, who stand in awe of you, who humble ourselves before you. We confess to you even before we take the bread and the cup, we are broken, Lord. We are sinful. We are dependent on the one and only one who has come and fulfilled the law of God, who stands righteous before God on our behalf, who credits us with righteousness. It is the only way, Lord, we know It is the only way that we would be accepted. We have and could do nothing to earn your grace, your pleasure, your forgiveness. And so we are grateful for Jesus. We're grateful, Jesus, for your body that was broken on our behalf to take upon yourself the punishment for the sins that we commit your blood that was spilled to forgive us and wash us clean. We thank you and we praise you. And we remember, even as we hold and then partake of the bread and cup, in Christ's name, amen.